listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured episode 116. It is kind of a dark week here at Belaboured, of course. It is kind of a dark week across America right now. But we are going to do our best to not be completely depressing. And on that first note, we have kind of a special news roundup today with our guest, Stephanie Luce, who is a professor of labor studies at the Joseph S. Murphy Institute at the City University of New York. And she was tracking ballot initiatives and other possible wins for the labor movement on election night. Tell us your overall impression of this election. I mean, beyond, oh God, everything is awful. Um, you know, what? what is the message that you saw on Tuesday night? Well, it is challenging to kind of come up with a comprehensive uh, summary because it is on the one hand horrifying and terrible. And on the other hand, there are positive signs and there are signs that there's openings for organizing and openings to move forward. And so I think some of the things we saw are first that even though Trump won pretty solidly in terms of electoral votes, the actual votes were pretty close in a lot of cases. And then when you look at the local level and even state level, you can see a number of victories on the issues that I think that a lot of voters care about. So one of the issues that I work on is minimum wage. And once again, we saw there were four initiatives on the ballot that uh, in four states, that all won easily, all to raise the minimum wage, some significantly. Well, minimum wage continues to be an example where voters of both parties consistently say they want it. Politicians of both parties tend to avoid it. Right. Um, I think it's just one example. I think there are other topics or issues that are this way that voters actually want and politicians don't want. So the the four uh, state campaigns were Arizona, Maine, Washington, and Colorado, and they won by a pretty sizable margin in in many of those cases. Maine, Arizona, and Colorado all raised the wage to twelve dollars an hour by twenty twenty, and the Maine one also gradually eliminates the sub wage for tipped workers. The Washington initiative raises it to 1350 by 2020. And that one was interesting because it also had very high support in Kings County, which is where Seattle is. Mm-hmm. And so that suggests that Seattle, which has already seen the 15, people are happy with it. You know, this very strong uh, proportion of voters said, yes, we, we think the minimum wage is working well in Seattle and it should be raised for the whole state. And just to clarify, I, I think uh, those are just state level, right? In Flagstaff, there was one that was the tipped minimum wage? Yes. So Flagstaff raised its city wage to 15 and also eliminates the sub-minimum for tipped. Berkeley, California had something on the ballot, but that one is actually confusing because the city council then passed another ordinance raising the wage to over 16 an hour. So I think the one on the ballot lost, but that's because voters were not being urged to support that because the city council was going to raise it. But they did raise their wage. And that's another thing we see, too, sort of like the dynamic between the state house or the city council and the and the ballot initiative. I know some grassroots groups in New Jersey, for instance, are like trying to leverage the ballot initiative for 15 against the um, legislation. Yes. But uh, when when Christie uh, vetoed the legislation because he's Chris Christie, I think they they decided to take it to the ballot. Yeah. Sometimes by 
having the state legislatures pass it, the, the legislatures have done that in the past to either pass a lower wage than voters want or to Republicans sometimes do that because they know that uh, having it on the state ballot turns out Democratic voters. And in a couple of cases, it's been that the state, the Republicans pass it in the state legislature to keep it off the ballot as a get out the vote initiative. And there were any other ones, I think, legalizing marijuana in some form? Yeah, I really liked the comment that you made on, on social media about how we need a candidate who runs on raising the wage and legalizing weed. Yes, exactly. I mean, Jerry Johnson kind of ran on legalizing weed, but definitely not on raising the minimum wage. So, yeah, yeah, lots of those one. You know, a couple other things that we're promising is, you know, a couple of state initiatives to defeat the expansion of charter schools. And the one in Massachusetts, I think, was particularly exciting because that had a lot of money invested in the campaign to expand. And there was a really strong grassroots effort by unions and community organizations that have been working for years to really build an alternative uh, narrative about public schools and public education in the state. And that got defeated very solidly. Something like 62% voted against. Georgia also voted against a charter school initiative. And then uh, another piece of good news was in Virginia, which was where there was an effort to make so-called right-to-work laws, anti-union laws, part of the state constitution, and that was defeated. Yeah, and that, I'm just getting almost more frustrated talking about this because it's like, look at all of our things, Yeah, (laughs) you know? Yeah, it it does feel like people have been talking about this for a while, which is that there are so many issues uh, from, tra- I mean, trade is one of them. It's, it's an issue that's voters hate on both sides and, uh, politicians on both sides keep promoting it. I mean, Trump now doesn't and Clinton has backed away, but, you know, and that's another interesting thing is as awful as this election was and these candidates, I think, were both very weak. It is fascinating that just in a short amount of time, the whole rhetoric around trade has changed and around certain elements of, you know, neoliberalism and even around things like global war, like that both candidates were trying to back away from support for war and trade agreements suggests that, you know, they are finally understanding what voters want. There were also, I think, a couple of of referendums on rent control. I don't know if you were paying attention to any of those, but I'm wondering, because obviously we're in the middle of some sort of weird housing boom in at least the big cities, Wondering if we're going to see more action on that. Yeah, it, it seems as if yeah, elements around uh, inequality, you know, both the rent control issues and around campaign contributions around there was an issue in South Dakota on payday loans by a huge uh, margin, I think. I think it reflects people's, you know, anger and frustration on economic issues and the need to, you know, for the state to start regulating once again this, you know, Wild West capitalism. Also, there were a couple of propositions about right to work that were on the ballot in Virginia, and I forget where the other one was. It was Alabama, and I think that that one did pass. The one in Virginia was to make so-called right to work part of the state constitution, and voters rejected that. So that will not be part of the state constitution. Are there any other labor policy or union policy related uh, referenda that you are following? I might say in terms of other union um, observations, 
I, I do think that, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric right now that's trying to blame working class voters for the outcome yeah. of this and working class rage. And uh, a friend pointed out to me that when does the New York Times, you know, even use the term working class? Uh, you know, it only used it as a, as a way to blame them for the outcome rather than looking at, you know, the failures of the politicians and the Democratic Party to address issues that people care about, like trade. But I, I do think it's important to point out that in terms of the unions, Union members still did vote for, for the Democrats. They voted, you know, the majority voted for Clinton if we could go by the exit polls. And exit polls aren't always, you know, necessarily accurate. But, you know, union support for Clinton was less than it was for Obama, but it still was support. There was strong support in some of the major states, you know, like Michigan and Illinois and, you know, some of the big union states, New Jersey. Uh, California, New York. And this is where union members are. Over half of union members are in just in seven states anyways. So it's very hard to say that they're responsible for what happened across the country. But I think one of the main points I would make about union members is that it's not that all union members vote Democratic, but they're much more likely to vote Democratic if they're in a union. So white males are going to overwhelmingly vote conservative unless they're in a union and then they're they're less likely to vote conservative. In my mind, this block of white male voters, non-college degree voters, that's more, most likely non-union members, you know, right. and, and, and I mentioned that, you know, the average union member now is much more likely to be a female that works in healthcare or in education, a teacher or a nurse, for example. So this image that there's a bunch of angry male union members voting for Trump, I think is probably misleading. And I was suggesting that, in fact, those white men voting for Trump because they are angry about trade and they feel like they there's no good jobs. Those are probably workers that should be in unions and maybe in the past would have been in unions. They're not now. Or maybe they lost their unions at their workplace. On a related note, I mean, in terms of the relationship between union, uh, labor unions and elections, I mean, the big strength of unions, it seems, is sort of pre-election in the get out the vote ground game. Were you observing any of that um, in this election season and, and how did it play out to you? And I guess I'm wondering, like, you know, as there's more union attrition coming down the line, how is that going to affect union clout in the electoral process? Yeah, I mean, this is one thing that, you know, it's still hard to say solid numbers, so it's more anecdotal, but certainly the unions have put a lot of money and resources, staff time, getting uh, their staff and their members out on campaigns, and that was true this time as well. I think what's difficult is that a lot of union members were pretty frustrated with the process this year. They felt they wanted to have the chance to have their unions endorse Bernie Sanders, they did not feel like Hillary Clinton was really speaking to their issues. And I think that what I saw was a lot of union members that may have even ended up doing door knocking and supporting Clinton, but not feeling that excited about it, not feeling that energetic because they weren't, you know, they didn't feel that confident that she was really backing some of the issues they cared about. So I do think unions will continue to put lots of money and resources into get out the vote efforts. Um, but as you say, as union density goes down, they're going to have a harder time doing that. And as rank and file members have less confidence in their leadership, they also might have less incentive to get out and knock on doors. Yeah, I'm wondering if you've paid any attention to, you know, the rise, at least in certain unions, of doing political education 
again, and not just sort of mobilize for this candidate because we tell you to, but I know CWA has an interesting program that they're doing when they're really talking about neoliberalism and the financialization of the economy and how that might be useful and expanded in, you know, America under Trump. Yeah. You know, just like we're in a fairly divided country, I think the labor movement is a bit divided too in terms of well, you know, cer- certainly in terms of environmental issues, as we can see with Standing Rock, but, you know, to the degree to which they're recognizing that we're in a real crisis, that we, in the sense we need to really shake things up and do things differently. Many of the unions had drastically cut back their education budgets. Some had eliminated their education departments. Some have eliminated their education assistance for their members, you know, in, in recent years as budgets got tighter and tighter, you know, and you know, I, I have been critical of unions that will find the money to spend on electoral work, but not find the money to spend on education. CWA example is very, very exciting and promising. Not enough of the unions are doing that. Um, and like you said, even when they're doing education, it, it's often like, this is why you should vote for the Democrat. Right. So we need, we really need to see more unions engaging in a deeper education program, getting at the root of the system and and not just saying don't support uh, the TPP, um, but you know these are the factors historically what are behind trade and and neoliberal policy in general. And uh, I know that the work you do at the Murphy Institute and um, some of those coalitions uh, with higher education, which are sadly slowly eroding and becoming ever rarer, um, are, are actually you know critical to building that kind of educational base as well. Some of the other initiatives that were related to labor broadly were um, on childcare and universal pre-K and these other sort of family issue related things. That that seems to be a, a rising trend in terms of getting things out like paid sick days and um, other things that are just more um, about family oriented policies. Is that a trend we're seeing? Yeah, and I and I should have mentioned the Washington State Minimum Wage Initiative included paid sick days. Uh, piece of that. So uh, we are definitely seeing uh, a linkage between some of the wage campaigns and issues like paid sick days. And then just in general, more attention to things like fair scheduling and access to childcare, trying to address this kind of work-life balance question. And, and I myself, I work a lot on minimum wage and living wage, and I've always you know, argued that, of course, just raising the wage itself is not the solution on its own. It's a tool and it's important, but you know, you could raise wages, but unless you also have high hours, it doesn't do anything. Or if you have too many hours and a lot of workers who are forced to work double shifts or forced overtime um, can't, you know, take care of their kids. So I think it is a great uh, move within a lot of the unions to start trying to address that work family work life balance question. It's often just harder to find the legislative angle on that. Uh, and, uh, you know, interestingly, it's in some cases, it's been harder to pass those. I think people are not seeing them yet as a generalized issue in the same way that they see wage issues. But hopefully the momentum will continue around some of those types of campaigns. A lot of the Fight for 15 grassroots campaigns have been waged essentially over ballot referenda, um, and, and a lot of the initial proposals have been in the form of, of referenda. Do you think that's going to be an increasingly common way to push these initiatives, uh, particularly around this sort of magic number of 15 that um, has gotten a lot of popular support? 
I'm also thinking that, you know, uh, since the chances of getting um, minimum wage done on a national level <laughs> are um, pretty dire right now, um, that, you know, ballot initiatives on stuff like this is going to be more mainstream. Yeah, I mean, it's it's true. I mean, it's funny because the last time we had a national uh, minimum wage increase was under George Bush. But that was not with such a, you know, united uh, Congress and Senate. Uh, so, yeah, it doesn't look promising for passing on the federal level. Um, the wage stuff. Yeah, I think what we've seen is that it's happening at the city and state level, both either through a city council action or through a ballot initiative. The ballot initiative one was hard because not all states allow that. And certainly not all cities have the authority to raise wages at the city level. In fact, most don't. But I think we will see continued action at the local level. And after all, it's in the cities that labor has its greatest, you know, the membership and where, you know, again, the results from Tuesday show it's a pretty divided country when you compare urban to suburban and rural. So I think we'll keep seeing more action on the the local level, because that's really at this point the only place people can really be building power. Although that's kind of been true for the last six years. Yes. Right. But basically nothing on the national level since the Affordable Care Act, except for some executive orders, which I guess begs the question of what is Donald Trump going to do by executive order, which is terrifying. But sort of on a more philosophical level, what do you think of referenda as a policy tool generally, because, I mean, obviously they are important vehicles for advancing some of this popular, you know, wage fairness legislation and other sort of, you know, pretty basic popular measures like that, but we've also seen them sort of used manipulatively or deceptively worded um, in a way that have ended up passing really regressive measures um, that maybe shouldn't be left up to a popular vote. So I guess maybe do you have any thoughts on how ballots are working in general um, in terms of progressive issues? Yeah, I'm mean, that's a great question because it's true that there's such strong reasons for them and then some concerns against. My personal view is that it still seems that we win more with those than we lose. They are vulnerable to manipulation and they're vulnerable for you know spending abuses just like electoral races are. So at this point, it seems our ability to engage in electing candidates at the state and federal level is just so extremely <laughs> lopsided at this point that we have no choice but to to stick with the referendum. And so I guess at this point, I still think it's overall better that we have it than we don't. But I think your uh, words of caution are important uh, to keep an eye out for. I mean, in, in fact, any system, any political system that is so heavily dominated by money in a context of such inequality, it's not going to be a fair system. And nothing about this country has rules that are set up to be fair. All of the rules are set up for our side to lose and lose and lose. So I think our our challenge is to continue to try and both work within those rules, but also to break those rules where we can so we can write new rules. Do you have any lessons for us going forward? I mean, for me, if I if I stretch my hardest to find the silver lining is to view the Trump support. You can view it as a vote of hatred and anger. And then there's a side you could view it as a vote uh, wanting to to break the system and, and have a change. I don't I mean, I don't believe that it is. But I try to think, well, maybe that's what it represents. Maybe the average Trump voter really is just voting for change. 
And that's obviously a vague, empty word in itself. But then when you look on the issues of what people want, it's mostly a positive thing. So I guess I would just go back to trying to, to, you know, we're building at the local level, trying to unite around those common issues, whether it's around inequality, economic justice, racial justice, more sane foreign policy. You know, I think those issues stand and the polls actually seem better and better about those issues. So those are the things I'm trying to focus on in these dark days. I think we're all feeling the desire to blame and, you know, the, the tendency often goes blaming each other. And so I think just as long as we can continue blaming, you know, looking above rather than to the side at each other, but looking at, you know, those who actually are in power uh, and, and the rules that have put us in this place, you know, the structure that put us in this place um, seems like the productive way to go. And that was Stephanie Luce, professor at the City University of New York, talking about the politics of labor and the dark days that lie ahead. And now to another rare bright spot in the elections. We speak to Nady Dominguez and Joe Diggs of the Basta Arpaio campaign, a unique labor community coalition that came together to defeat the re-election bid of the infamous anti-immigrant bigot Sheriff Joe Arpaio, an early precursor to Trump, who became famous, that is reality TV famous, for his brutal and cruel detention and deportation practices against local immigrants. Nady is an organizer with the AFL-CIO and an immigrant activist, and Joe Diggs is the lead national organizer at the American Federation of Government Employees. Who is Sheriff Jaropiro and why was it so important to defeat him uh, in 2016? It was important to uh, defeat Sheriff Jaropiro because of what he stands for and the philosophies and his approach and his attitude. He's very inhumane and disrespectful to the dignity of human beings, regardless of color, across the board. I'm an older African-American gentleman, not so old that I remember the civil rights movement. I was born during the time that they were going on. But in our history books, we remember figures like Bull Connors and the sheriff down south who was very bigoted. He used to hose down the, the protesters, the peaceful protesters with water cannons and sicken dogs on people. He was very much a symbol of intolerance and hatred and abuse of power, abuse of the police trust that we give police. And it was important to defeat him so that you could start to chip away at that mentality. The same thing holds true for Sheriff Joe. Sheriff Joe represents abuse of power, bigotry, hatred. And in many cases, they use violence against the people, not just citizens of Mexican or Latino descent, but of all citizens who've been unfortunate enough to be in his jail. So the way you remove people in a democratic society is through mobilizing organizing and getting yourself to the polls to vote the man out. He didn't take the office by force. He was elected in. So it was our job to elect him out. And I was glad to be in service in helping this community and all communities of Maricopa County get rid of a real blight on our state and our county. Also quickly, um, he was reelected in 2012, but he had a stronger opposition uh, this time around, right? Yeah, I think the... The opposition, I feel like in Joe, of course, you know, he lives in Phoenix. Um, I grew up, I, I was born in Mexico, grew up in Los Angeles, and been 
sort of like periodically coming into Phoenix, Arizona, uh, especially after SB 1070, as many other folks from all over the country coming in, trying to do our part in fighting back anti-immigrant laws that, you know, as far as we understand it, both in the labor movement and sort of the progressive movement, Arizona hasn't functioning as the, as a lab, um, sort of the, the, the lab of the country for a lot of anti-immigrant hyper criminalization laws for people of color. So for us, it was a lot of fighting back back then and obviously also fighting our pile. And I think for, for the AFL-CIO this time around, publicly joining hands with several community groups, including Puente, CNL, Lucha, um, and many others to, to have our unions and specifically nine unions, everything from, you know, government employees like the union Joe comes from to service workers like the ones from UFCW and building trades like the painters, um, that join, join hands here in the fight to get rid of him for us. It was about taking on the bully of working class people. Um, and Arpaio, for us, was what we feared could possibly be the Arpaio of other 50 states, which would be Trump. You know, And so the way we saw it was Arpaio is what we feared Trump would be in 50 other states. And we needed to be not only supporting this this fight but we needed to be in it we needed to be shoulder to shoulder with young people of color that have been directly affected by his policies and people that have been deported themselves and because of community efforts got back that were the very canvasser joe and i walk with to say we're you know enough is enough basta and we're gonna take you down you're in the rope you spend $142 million of taxpayers' money to defend yourself. You're more concerned about, you know, chasing headlines than enforcing laws. And we were ready to do that, and we did. And so we were very proud of the part that we've been able to play in this fight and taking him down. I've, you know, I think we feel like is one, one of the, the bright spots from this election. And a lot of people have a lot to learn from from Maricopa County in Arizona about about living and thriving in Trumpland and fighting back. So can you tell us how this campaign against Arpaio and the coalition that ran it came together? Yeah, so the community groups, you know, they've been fighting for several cycles, but like many of them really needing more to like buffer up their yeah. like electoral arm, you know, like how do we do the type of campaign where we practice the things that the labor movement actually is really good at, like the electoral work, and also inject the creative and energy and, like, direct action blood we need to make this the right kind of car we needed to beat him down. And all of those things coming together require all of us coming in and giving the best that we could give into that car. And so... Groups formed uh, People United for Justice, a C4 table to then create an independent expenditure campaign against Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And, you know, the unions joined in that, in that fight by coming in with resources, but also sort of extending our, our infrastructure of electoral work 
And then, of course, like our leaders and rank and file members like Joe, um, wanting to be there at the very front lines. And Joe, what, like you've been living here, so like you probably can say way more about sort of the coalition building that was necessary yeah. for this time around. Yeah, it was it was necessary because um, as Sheriff Joe Biden of himself has a stronghold of support in certain parts of Maricopa County. We have a lot of uh, people who come in from out of town, older citizens who come here during the winter months and retire. You know, this is their like their secondary home. They right. also register themselves to vote here, and so they bring a lot of their fearfulness of the other. Uh, person uh, and some of their attitudes, and they, I mean, Sheriff Joe always set himself up as their protector of their culture and of their way of life and everything else, demonizing young Mexicans and Mexican Americans, whether they're documented or undocumented. The entire group was painted with the same brush. As a result, this led to all kinds of uh, legislation that came through. We talked about SB 1070. Prior to that, there was something called Proposition 200 and others, and Sheriff Joe was at the forefront of these uh, attacks on these communities. And once the public started understanding a little bit better about beyond his publicity machine and started seeing what was actually going on in his prison, what's going on in his jails, to people, many of whom were just charged with a crime, never convicted, just charged and couldn't make bail, uh, how they were treated, the number of lawsuits that they had to be settled for abuses in his jails, it brought a lot of people together. So the, instead of it just being a Latino issue or an immigrant issue, it became a community issue. And once he started racking up the bills, terms of $142 million in taxpayer money to defend his behaviors, much of which was unnecessary, that brought a lot of more people into the mix. So it was a perfect storm of of people affected by the behavior of this individual, buoyed by the support of, in a lot of cases, people who do not live here in Arizona year-round, but live here long enough to establish residency to vote. So we knew it was going to be a large mobilization effort, and that's why the coalition reached out to everybody, and that's why so many different groups, if you look in the video library that we have and the photos that we have on Bostar Bio, You'll see many different groups represented, many different ethnicities represented because of the need to just get him out of here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for for the sort of labor movement, like in general, for us, the unions, like a lot of people would ask us, like, why are you guys involved in this? Why is this a labor fight that you want to take on in a presidential election year? You know, like it was, Arizona was not even in sort of like a tier one level state even for us. Um because it's, it's like we don't have a lot of union density here. It's a red state, um, and so the people didn't really. I also feel like people underestimated the power of the like people of color vote and like how they, you know, maybe last night Arizona didn't go blue, but it sure is goddamn purple. And I think for us, the answer was there's no. How can we thrive as a working class? community with families if our families are living in terror and having to like every day defend themselves just to be able to work like how can we build a strong working class movement if that's the first sort of obstacle we face that we need to then get rid of that obstacle and that's why it was a labor issue in our eyes right the other thing i would add to that too is 
this group of folks a lot oftentimes are being exploited significantly. Mm-hmm. Families suffer as a result of that. Communities outside of the immigrant community suffer as a result of the exploitation that takes place in this community. So labor has an investment in this as well because this hurts the lack of a coherent and realistic uh, immigration policy that doesn't acknowledge, number one, the existence and the need of these folks in our country doing work, paying them at a, run, at a real rate. All it does is depress wages in and around the area, which hurts everybody in the long run. So labor is invested in this, not just from a humanitarian standpoint, but also from an economic standpoint. The people, A large number of the people in that community, vast majority of people in the community, whether they're documented or undocumented, contribute economically to the communities that they live in. They're good citizens here in everything other than status. And the status can be resolved. As long as they're in a documented status, they are in danger of being exploited by employers who knowingly hire them, use them for their use them for their uh, work and their sweat, and try to and keep their wages down, and thus keep the wages down of everybody in and around. So labor is invested in making sure that everybody's treated humanely, not just based on the fact that you know we're human beings and that's what we should be doing, but also because economically people who may not even feel like they're connected to this community may even have animosity towards this community. If this community is not treated fairly economically, then it affects their community. It affects their communities as well outside of the immigrant community. And that's why labor is invested in this. And Sheriff Joe is just a symbol, a big symbol of how we can change that when a community comes together. I mean, it's not a slogan. People united can never be defeated. That's what happened in this campaign. There was all these groups that came together. There was no way we were going to lose. No way. Talk about the actual ground game of getting out and and organizing people and persuading them to vote against Arpaio, but also just care more about the issue, the, the, the issues at the heart of the campaign. You had noted that it, it was not sort of a natural organizing hub for you guys. So um, talk about what it was like to penetrate um, the local electorate and how you were able to, to bank on the resources you had there. I mean, there were kind of two populations that we were trying to talk to and have conversations with. And there was a difference of this campaign really being against Arpaio. And not for any candidate, but against a pile. And, like, understanding that as a frame is, like, the number one step. And we were kind of talking to two groups of people, right? And the folks that have been directly affected by his policies and how he has been enforcing the last sheriffs here in Maricopa County, which was predominantly Latino young people, that this was the first time that they could vote. Our, our sort of, quote-unquote, universe in terms of who we were trying to vote were first-time voters. So here in Arizona, 150,000 new registered voters were registered in this this year alone. And that's the work of many, many organizations at the state level. That's like unprecedented. And I would even say probably I have not heard of any other state kind of meeting that kind of number. And so a large new pool of new voters, children of parents that have been deported and have suffered directly the anti-immigrant policies of Sheriff Joe Arpaio here. And then those that also have suffered by living in, in a community that, you know, every day is 
treating a group of your neighbors badly, right? And then the second group of people we were talking to, the people that also just, you know, he was wasting resources, right? Like the people that are, and they were going to look at this, at this fight from a, like a fiscal perspective and just like, not only is this guy, you know, just a total tyrant in that county, but he's also wasting our taxpayers' money to have these, like, unbelievably expensive um, lawyers that are fighting back lawsuits, having 10 cities that is, like, empty. And, you know, there were these questions around resourcing and what does that mean and what does it look like in a place like Maricopa County. So talking to those two different groups of people, we knocked on over 100,000 doors with a combined sort of, like, boots in the ground of, of young people, like teens, we're talking about teenagers, um, high school students that were part of other um, efforts through the partners that were part of, you know, part of the bigger coalition, union members that talked to other union members about it. Uh, the labor movement conducted more than 50, yeah, probably, I guess, in total, more than 100,000 calls of union to union conversations about why, we, you know, if you were for Clinton, you couldn't be then you know, for our pile. Um, and so I feel like everybody brought the best out of them, you know, into this campaign. And we all recognize that not all of us know how to do everything right, but there's a few skills that we each actually do very well. And so let's blend that together and let's try to do something very unique and different. Um, and that's, I think, like the recipe that the Buster Pile campaign tried to put together and, and it worked. Yeah, I just wanted to say this, too, which I thought was important about this particular campaign. Um, for I know a lot of people who supported Hillary Clinton were anti-Trump were a little depressed after the results of last night. And I get that. But this campaign should be an example to them of a different way you approach politics. The Clinton campaign got caught up in the tried and true political science of approaching things a certain way. The amazing thing, the genius part of this particular campaign, mm -hmm. was the idea of targeting those first-time non-voters or infrequent voters, groups who, under normal political science uh, practices, campaigns tend to write off. Mm -hmm. This campaign made it a mess, made it a point to go after that group and get them energized and mobilized around. That was that is a difference. And I think that if the national powers that be on these kinds of things want to take the strategy uh, lesson from this campaign, they should take that one. Is that there are no group of voters that you should be writing off. There's no other message comes from Trump's victory. That's the that many of the people who voted for Trump felt like they were ignored. We did not ignore any voters in our universe that was possible to upset a very popular sheriff. You know, Sheriff Joe is very popular here. So it was going to require that. And maybe because of the size of Sheriff Joe's popularity, uh, the Basta Arpaio campaign made a decision that strategically we had to broaden the universe if we were going to win this election. And that's what happened. And so that is a genius move. That is a, I'm not using that word lightly. Because it is something that today a lot of high-paid operatives are wondering, how did they lose? Yes, here in what is a, a supposedly a red state, in the reddest of counties with a popular sheriff, we were able to take him down 
with mobilization based on the idea that we expanded that universe. So the labor movement has a not a great history up until very recently of fighting on the side of, of immigrants and immigrant workers and has been fraught with a lot of questions this year about what it's going or the last few years about what it's going to do about Black Lives Matter, about police officers, um, about police violence and police officers unions. So um, in the context of all that, why is it significant that so many unions were willing to be a part of this campaign? Well, our union is the largest federal union in the country. Yeah. We represent over 650,000 federal employees nationwide. The significance of that is we represent everybody from the VA to Social Security. We mm-hmm. also represent ICE and Border Patrol. And those two sub-councils in our union endorsed Donald Trump. However, our national union felt like this was important because of the things that we talked about before. You know, the um, different humanitarian issues that were going here, the abuse. Because many workers are underpaid as a result of the press wages in and around the areas that they live in. Mm-hmm. So in terms of some of the unions getting involved, there's an economic component to it. Uh, we did not want to antagonize our ICE brothers and sisters or our Border Patrol brothers and sisters because they're doing their job. That's their job. They enforce the law that's on the books. But they, too, also see the, the weight and the results and the consequences of the exploitation of this group, right? So there so for our union overall, it wasn't hard. When we deal with Black Lives Matter or other social issues, that's a return of unions back to their traditional social justice roots. You know, the labor movement comes initially out of a social justice movement. At our core, that's what we are. So wherever there's an injury to one worker, it's an injury to all workers. We hold ourselves to that standard to defend anybody that's in our community because at the end of the day, all people are workers, whether you're a police officer, whether you're a person who works at the Target going to your job and and somebody abuses the power trust they're given with a badge, we have a problem with that too. So, yeah, unions are going to be involved in the community because we live here. Our members are black. Our members are Latino, our members are white, our members are part of law enforcement. We think our contribution can help bring, resolve some of the tensions that arise around us and bring us to a table in a common place in the fact that we all work for a living. We all have that respect for each other that works for a living, and we try to figure out how we can work out these differences. That's what labor's role is for us, at least, AMT. Yeah, and I think from, you know, the historical perspective, as you, like, noted, you know, the FOPIO, the labor movement as a whole in the last decade doesn't have the best track record when it comes to, like, immigration reform or criminal justice work. But I also feel that there's this misconception of who is the labor movement and what is the labor movement, because there's the institution and then there are the workers, right? And not every union is the same. And Joe's union is very different from, like, the painters union or the, you know, hotel workers union. But from our perspective, most of sort of the rest of the public, like they don't, there's just the labor movement, right? So like there's no differentiation and that's one piece of it. And I feel like from the bottom up, the unions are changing in who is in leadership and what they look like to what they are prioritizing in their political agenda. And the SLCIO at the national level has played a very important role fighting for immigration reform, you know, for the last 
15 years and changing a lot of their own stance on those things. You know, perhaps for a lot of, for a lot of mainstream sort of progressive, like more radical stance, like saying we need to stop deportations in this country. And the FOCIO has been there at that fight with many groups um, that even within the progressive movement would have been considered as too radical. And we recognize that we just, like, not only are we changing and our policies are changing, but, like, this is our issue. Like, how immigration policies are shaped will affect the markets and industries and the workforce of this country, and that's our issue. Those are our issues. That's what we do. Those are the members we represent, the unions represent. So none of these things, just like the Black Lives Matter movement, our members, our reconciled members, are not involved just because it's the right thing to do, like Joe said, but because these are their communities and like this directly impacts sort of the economic justice and well-being of all working-class families in this country. And we cannot be at the, at the like sidelines of that. And how does that engagement look like? It's going to differentiate from union to union, and it's going to differentiate from state to state, from county to county, and neighborhood by neighborhood, right? And I think this campaign shows the many possibilities of the strength and creativity and innovation and power we can build together when we do things with the rest of the makeup of our community. Talk about the other things that were sort of uh, going on simultaneously with this campaign. There's a minimum wage referendum at play, and there are other sort of cross-cutting issues. Can you talk about how you maybe help bring those in and, and help sort of build out that coalition? So, I mean, the same sort of like coalition that was walking and knocking on doors, you know, against our pile on behalf of the Bastard Pile campaign were also a lot of the same folks that were walking doors for Proposition 206 to raise the minimum wage, right? And so, again, like, for many of these communities, you can't really choose one or the other, right? Like, these these families have not only been terrorized and, like, prosecuted because they're immigrant and they're brown and black, but they're also working-class families that need better wages. So for a lot of these groups, none of those things were an either-or. They needed to be fought together. And so... You know, they won, they, they won Proposition 206. Now Arizona is on their road to raising the minimum wage to $12. I believe by 2020, right, Joe? It's going to go up gradually uh, by year 2020. Yeah. And then, and then there was also, I mean, the three things that we were kind of paying attention to were the Arpaio race, the county recorders race, which also the contendent one, and so the current county recorder Purcell will be out, and now there will be a new person. There's been so much border suppression and, like, just so many issues around those things here in in Maricopa County for a really long time, and so I think people are just really excited to finally just have new blood in there, um, and Proposition 206 to raise the minimum wage, um, and then, of course, sort of seeing the possibility and the growth of progressive voters coming out and voting for Clinton over Trump in Arizona. And I, I just really think nobody really saw, like, the numbers at the end were so close. And I think folks underestimated sort of the potential Arizona had in, at a, in a national perspective, right? Like, there were, like, at the very end, did the Democratic Party, like, throw in here resources to turn out the vote? 
um, like literally like a week before or something like that. And that's because I really feel like the power of black and brown voters is constantly like underestimated and undermined in many ways. And I think this whole election has, I hope, is a big lesson for not just the labor movement, but like the whole progressive movement and in the country. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're talking about that. That's a really important point, right? That the Democratic Party didn't think Arizona was worth fighting for. And so, of course, Trump did want Arizona. And you mentioned at the beginning that Trump was kind of the Joe Arpaio of the whole country. Um, so I would love to hear a little bit about sort of winning this campaign in the heart of Arizona mm-hmm. as Trump won it. Well, let me just say this. I haven't been here 20 years in my life. And being a union person and activist here in this state, this is not traditionally seen as a, a union hotbed. Right. And sometimes, but I don't know why, right? There are people here who, the wages here are low. This is an employment at will state, which means you can be fired for any reason without being told of the reason. So, again, this helps to depress wages. If anybody ever needed a union more, it's the workers of the state of Arizona. Mm-hmm. So... What I hope this lesson shows the powers that be within the union movement and within the Democratic is don't just write off a state because you think you know. As a matter of fact, this state has 11 electoral votes. I know that we spent a lot of money and effort in, uh, let's say, Nevada, which at the end of the day only represents six electoral votes. Arizona has more. But because of the resources and there are more union density in Nevada, people tend to send to you think that you can move people there, and it's a little bit easier lift. But this this campaign should demonstrate to everyone that it is possible when you unify around a common cause that people can agree on and motivate and get out and then do different things, like broaden your universe, that you can challenge some of these long-held misconceptions. You know, uh, for as much as the Democrats can be criticized for ignoring Arizona, uh, the Republicans can be as well because they didn't feel like they had to do a whole lot here either because they just considered it to be in the in the bag. This yeah. challenge means that the next go-round, they will have resources here because they're going to take note of this campaign and they're going to know that we here in Arizona can mobilize well enough to move the to move. The, to move the status quo a little bit differently. They're going to be sending resources here to make sure, to try to make sure that this coalition doesn't hold or that they can overwhelm it. So hopefully this puts the state of Arizona on notice. I mean, the people on notice about the state of Arizona that uh, we're, here to, we're, here to, we're here to last. We can make it work, and they should stop being afraid to come here. This is very much a great a uh, place to, to, to affect change. Now that, obviously, uh, there's a victory on a very local level against sort of someone who is deemed a mini-Trump, but now we have a real Trump in the White House. What are some lessons that we can maybe bring forward as we seek to organize on a national level and uh, talk about future alliances between the labor movement and the immigrant rights movement um, in a place that many people see as ground zero for the battle that's going on nationwide right now? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think the first one has been really like uh, inspiring, I guess that would be the word, but powerful to be in Arizona as this is happening 
because I'm sure you guys have heard, um, thousands of youth walked out of high, of school today protesting Trump being elected as president. Like, as we speak, I was trying to cover the phone because I had like two helicopters on top of flying on top of <laughs> on top of me because they've been following the youth since the morning and they ended at the Capitol, which is near where I'm sitting right now. And the people that have been part of the Left Eye Pride campaign and Joe, like, chime in here if you think I'm like, you know, overestimate, like, overstating this, but like, they, like, today in the press conference, they, you know, the, the, the very people that have been walking the doors and talking, that they were being pushed on this question of like, how do you feel now that Trump is in, like, you know, on his way to the White House? Like, are you afraid? Like, how afraid are you? Um, are you fearful of what will happen to you and your family? And, their response was like, no, we're not afraid. We like, we have been fighting our Trump in our own backyard. Like we think the rest of the country has a lesson to learn from here that you can fight back and you can win. Um, that you need to be like bold and not afraid, but like we're going to fight. <laughs> and so as I then see my, like my emails and the feedback and my, Facebook and, and Twitter, it, it's all like, you know, like doomsday. I'm very glad that I'm not in D.C. and I'm in Arizona um, in this moment because seeing their response, seeing sort of this like readiness to fight back is exactly what I think the rest of our country needs to see. However, you know, I is not to say that in those intimate spaces that these folks have, right, like of course, they're feeling this, like, reaffirmation that a lot of people in this country feel like people like Joe and I, Joe being black, me being an immigrant, undocumented up three years ago that I got my green card, aren't supposed to be here. And that is a hard truth to, like, wrestle with when you also are someone that believes in that potential and that kind of country the U.S. could be for all people. And still at the same time feel this rejection by a good chunk of people in this country. And so it's, so how do we move forward? It's like, we don't back down. Um, we don't accept this as a victory just by the mere fact that he's now going to be on his way to the White House. Well, there have been wings along the way in the last decade. There were wings, like um, our pile being defeated in the same cycle and we don't walk back. We push in. I feel like a lot of folks like the Black Lives Matter movement, that one more my you know, like this is this could be perceived as sort of like backlash, you know, <laughs> of like mm -hmm. how much like just like how how much we've pushed this government and like this country to see us, to see itself in the mirror. And there will be some forces or some voices that will say, you know, this is why we need to, you know, find a middle ground. This is why we need to calm down. This is why we need to, like, not be as radical. And I absolutely disagree. I think this is the time to be even more bold and more innovative and more powerful together. And it calls for a, a whole new level of solidarity among amongst the progressive movement. And I think, like, it starts by us, the labor movement, recognizing that we will not be able to win any fight alone anymore. We haven't really been able to do that before, and we absolutely will not be able to do that in a Trump administration with a 
like Republican Congress and when he gets to choose who the next Supreme Court appointee is, like we will not fundamentally be able to fight back alone. But neither are the immigrant rights groups, neither are the women's rights groups, neither are the environmental rights groups. Like we need each other more than ever before in a very different way. And it will be up to us to really figure out how do we reconcile that. That's how I'm yeah. feeling. Let me just add this to that. Echoing something that he said about her Facebook. I've got friends, you know, they're having bushels of cows. They're just having cows, right? They just can't believe it. You know, people threatening to move to Canada, Costa Rica, and everything else. And for those folks, I say, okay, goodbye. The re- the reality is, we're always in a mode where we're fighting. We're fighting to gain what we deserve. We're fighting to keep what we've gained. There's never a day that we get to rest. The thing that would, because this question did come up a lot with our folks today about whether they're fearful of a Trump president. I can tell you firsthand, having walked those doors, having heard their stories of what they've already dealt with, they're not afraid of anything. And it's that it's that boldness, that willingness to fight, that that spirit of fight in them that's going to keep this going, right? They're not going to quit. As Nettie also says, and she's right about this, Mr. Trump made it very clear in his his run-up to the presidency which groups he has issues with, which groups that he's threatened. He talked a lot and said a lot, so we just take the man at his word. So there's an opportunity for different communities to build coalitions together. And I do think that there are a lot of shocked people who were sitting on the sidelines who somehow believe that through inaction, just because they didn't want it to happen, that Mr. Trump could not win the election. Well, he wants. So maybe this will wake them up to join the fight as well. But one thing's for certain, Labor was born fighting. We've been fighting. We're going to keep fighting. And we can take a good example, a good inspiration, watching groups like Boston Arpaio and some of these other community groups who have fought hard for these victories and fought uphill. And, you know, we will be there as a labor movement with them because, again, I'll say it again, the labor movement, started out as a social justice movement, it continues to be a social justice movement. And so wherever there's social injustice, the wave is going to be there. Our union will be there. The AFL-CIO will be there. We will be there. You know, the fight with across Arizona with SB 1070 and all these other things that are still going on, I mean, the, the status quo is basically still in place tomorrow as far as detention as far as the general framework of immigration law enforcement, right? I mean, that's not going away with Arpaio. No, but it does provide an opening. He was the ugliest face of this. He is not the only face, right? Like, we still have criminal justice system that doesn't work for everyone the same. And we still have growing anti-immigrant bills and laws all over the country. But he was sort of at like the very forefront of that monster. Now he's gone. And now we have Trump. <laughs> but now we can see that, you know, sort of the irony of it is like, here it is, Maricopa County gets rid of like Joe Arpaio that has been sitting on his little like, you know, golden chair and like really believing like he really had the power to do whatever he wanted and there were no consequences and really there were almost no consequences for him. He's still not in jail for everything he's done. And they and these folks get him out and then the rest of the country 
is now in a red nation. <laughs> and so I think that, yes, none of those things change, but the opportunities there and how do we go forward is going to matter so much for decades to come. Nadie is an organizer with the AFL-CIO and an immigrant activist, and Joe Diggs is the lead national organizer at the American Federation of Government Employees. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now for a little post-election catharsis, we bring you ARG! I wish I'd written that. Where we talk about the things that we wish we could have written this week but did not. My pick for the week is about the elections, as you might have predicted. It is by Bill Fletcher Jr., longtime labor activist, veteran of the trade union movement, offering a reflection after the elections about, wow, what the hell just happened? Uh, He reminds us, first of all, that this election isn't some newfangled political uprising or some weird formation that we've never seen before, or even an electoral fluke. It's an historical reckoning that was a long time coming for both the right and the left and requires a serious response on every front of every people's movement. The seeds of this disaster were really sown during slavery times. And this is because we have the Electoral College, which made it possible for a candidate to get only a minority of the popular vote and yet get a majority of the Electoral College votes. So with that in mind, what the hell did just happen? Fletcher argues that the dimensions of class and so-called anti-globalization sentiment should not be underestimated, but it is critical, he argues, quote, to appreciate that Trump's appeal to whites was around their fear of multiple implications of globalization. This included trade agreements and migration, and Trump focused on the symptoms inherent in neoliberal globalization, such as job loss, but his is not a critique of neoliberalism. He continues to advance deregulation, tax cuts, anti-unionism, etc. He was making no systemic critique at all, but the examples that he pointed to from wreckage resulting from economic and social dislocation resonated for many whites who felt for various reasons that their world was collapsing. The sense of doom may have been informed, I argue, by economic frustration, by racial animus, by generalized status anxiety, cultural alienation, what have you, and their social lives have been uprooted, and that should be appreciated in and of itself as a real phenomenon, even if the beliefs surrounding it are colored by bigotry, media fiction, etc. So the question for the rest of us is, is there potential to incorporate these folks into the movement we want to build? Of course, the answer is yes, but it is going to require an agonizing, scary, potentially transformative, but incredibly painful process to really grasp this potential. Fletcher argues that we see this in reactionary movements here and abroad. Quote, it was the connection between globalization and migration that struck a chord, just as it did in Britain with the Brexit vote. In both cases, there was tremendous fear for the changing complexion of both societies brought on by migration and economic dislocation. Protectionism plus firm borders were presented as answers in a world that is altered dramatically with the reconfiguration of global capitalism. And he also acknowledges a deep strand of sexism running through the resentment of Clinton, 
without sugarcating her massive and ultimately irreconcilable flaws as a candidate. Those flaws were both ideological and amplified by the media, but misogyny can't be ignored as a factor when considering who and what kind of horribleness she was up against. And the right-wing populism that helped drive Trump was not a coherent ideology, it was not even a cohesive political alliance, even though they called themselves a movement, it was a phalanx of single-minded hatred that mobilized his base. And it, of course, could come apart very soon once reality hits the fan in Trumplandia. And I'm sure by now you've all read a gazillion postmortem think pieces like Fletcher's, granularly analyzing what went wrong and why. But I thought it was worth pointing out that we have an explanation of Trump that raises more questions than attempts to answer. And it ascribes reasons without casting blame. To some degree, that's neither here nor there. What matters is that a political figure has risen to the most powerful office in the world by driving the sheer force of demagoguery. The analysis is for us to do, and the work of organizing involves tapping into not anyone's powers of analysis, but tapping into the same seam of emotion that drove people to the polls in the first place, because God knows it was not their intellectual powers of analysis that made them cast the ballot for Trump. It was a rational reaction to a world that was, in many ways, irrational and will continue to be after election day and of course we're all in a way trying to make sense of a world that doesn't make sense to us anymore especially on november 9th and that can breed self-destruction as it did in this past election or it can seed a movement this country has seen worse it's worth remembering and we do have very short memories as activists however filthy and stupid that fight might be that lies ahead uh, the fact that we're still standing is a testament to the fact that others fought like hell to make our existence possible against all the odds. So keep that in mind. Don't take anything for granted, but don't write anything off just yet. And now something from before the election, which somehow seems like a million years ago, but remains important because the struggles remain the same. They are just amplified now. Anyway, Kate Aronoff, co-host of Descent's other podcast, Hot and Bothered, which we hope you're listening to, had an excellent piece up earlier in this week, looking at the continuing debates and organizing within labor around the battle at Standing Rock against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And of course, the question of labor's response to climate change more broadly. The piece is at In These Times, and it is titled, Layuna's Rank and File is Challenging Union Leadership on Standing Rock and Beyond. As labor tries to find its place in the climate struggle, rank-and-file members of the Laborers International Union of North America have bucked their national leadership and gone to Standing Rock to join the fight and to be part of the labor encampment within the larger Ochete Sekoan camp. And they have taken lessons from struggles of the past seven years with them. One of those uh, members is from Wisconsin and tells Kate... Standing Rock really wasn't that much different from the protest in the Capitol five years ago, where we had people from all walks of life coming, Riddle says. People were giving, everyone was kind-hearted. If somebody was hungry, we fed them. If they were cold, we gave them a coat. At first, I got a lot of flack because I was wearing my Layuna shirt, she continues, though fellow campers warmed upon realizing she was there to join the water protectors, not berate them. Riddle has recruited more Madisonians to travel to Standing Rock in the coming weeks. We took a pledge when we were all in Wisconsin to all be part of a Wisconsin union, she told Kate. So in my book, everyone we're sending out to Standing Rock is part of the Wisconsin union. 
Liam Kane, who is another Layuna member who went to Standing Rock, noted that Layuna represents workers on green energy jobs as well, but that those jobs so far do not pay as well as the pipeline work or other fossil fuel extraction. Some Trump support, he told Kate, was from union workers who thought that Trump would have fewer regulations on extraction, thus keeping these higher-paying jobs around. These questions, of course, will persist into a Trump presidency with the stakes on the climate fight growing higher with each year. Without a president likely to reign in the industry, it will be more than ever on all of us to fight for a just transition to make the cleaner jobs better jobs, and to stand together. As our guests today noted, no single-issue fight is going to be able to win on its own in this moment. It will take solidarity, which is something that labor knows a lot about. That is all we have time for today. We hope that you are standing strong wherever you are. Let us know. You can always email us at belabored@descentmagazine.org or tweet at us at hashtag belabored if you have a local story that we missed, a bright spot in the darkness, or you just need to talk to somebody. We are here, and we will continue, of course, the fight. Thank you again, as always, to our supporters, all of our listeners, and particularly to those of you who have signed up as monthly supporters at the Descent website, donating $3, 5 or $10 a month. If you donate $5 or more a month, you get our excellent belabored tote bag. And uh, you can find links to that and to everything else we have talked about today at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. Thank you, as always, for being here with us, maybe particularly this week. And uh, we'll be back soon. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>